Join over 350,000 people just like you who are taking control of their wellness journey with Viome. When it comes to choosing the right food and supplements for you, don't guess, test. With Viome's health intelligence test, you get over 30 health insights based on your unique biology and your gut microbiome. You also receive personalized food recommendations and precision supplements formulated literally just for you. Use code GENIUS to get an extra $20 off a health intelligence test. Visit Viome.com to shop now. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius Podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Yuli Rudishauer. Uh, he's a professor and Board of Governors Chair in Neuroscience at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. And we're going to talk about the topic of memories. So, uh, Yuli, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me, Richard. It's my pleasure. Yeah, tell me about uh, a bit about your history and then how you got into the study of uh, memories. Uh, certainly, yes, I'd be happy to. So um, that's, uh, I'll start with, with my background. So I'm, I'm presently uh, a neuroscientist here at Cedars-Sinai studying memory. And I have come into this field via originally computer science. I, I started out by uh, studying computer science for my bachelor's. Uh, and, and while doing so, I became incredibly interested in how machines may be able to learn and form memories. And I eventually gravitated towards finding out how the brain actually does those things. So I decided to uh, do neuroscience for my graduate study, uh, which I did at Caltech in Pasadena. And after uh, postdoc, I started my uh, lab here at Cedars-Sinai in 2012, where I remain till now. Uh, So how would you characterize your current research? What are you working on? So my principal interest is human memory. I'm fascinated and want to understand how it is that the human brain can form memories, it can retrieve memories, it can consolidate memories, we can make decisions about memories. And I I would like to understand how fundamentally at the biological level this works and also what aspects of these processes break down when they don't they no longer work and as 
we all know those have, those can have devastating consequences. And unfortunately, at the moment, there's often very little uh, we can do. And one of the reasons for that is that we just don't have the sort of principal knowledge of how memory actually works to start thinking about how we could uh, fix it when it doesn't work anymore. So what does that mean works or doesn't work? What what are what does that mean memory works or doesn't work? You forget something or, um, I don't know, the process of forming memories doesn't work? Yeah, there's many different ways that it couldn't work. So the most devastating uh, is if, if we are just not able to form any new memories, meaning anything that happens to us uh, as, as an individual being the next day, it just, it's like it hadn't happened. So that that's kind of the more most devastating case. And if, if you think about what it really means to have that condition, it, it, it comes clear that our memories really define who we are. So if you're not able to, to form new memories, that really goes to the core of what it means to be human. And similarly, other dysfunctions are that memories could very well be formed and exist, but, but, but we can't retrieve them. And that goes from more mild cases, which I'm sure this happened to you or happened to me quite often, that I know that I know something, but I just can't access it at the moment. But I know it's sort of on the tip of my tongue. All the way to just being not able to access uh, some memories on some days and other days uh, we can access memories. So this is a very well uh, phenomenon, well-known phenomena in certain disorders that, that people have good days and bad days. And then on the bad days, they just can't access their memories at all. But it's not like these memories don't exist because on another day, all of a sudden they can access them. I have a, I don't know, it's just my own made-up hypothesis. I've noticed that when people aren't in a good way, you know, depressed, anxious, whatever it is, you know, they're ruminating a lot. I, my theory is like they're sucking up a ton of glucose and they're actually maybe going into like a hypoglycemic state. And in that state, it may be very hard to form memories or to process things. Again, this is just my complete speculation, but what, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, it's certainly the case that there are certain brain states or even bodily states that during which it becomes very difficult to use the memory system. Uh, so for example, when we are in a, in a, in a state of, of extreme fear, for example, we may not actually form any memories of that experience. We'll, we'll not, not remember it. And similarly, if we are in a state of very high stress or fear or, or exhaustion, uh, we may not be able to access memories just because the, the body prioritizes other functions. Are you trying to help people access their memories when they couldn't or form new memories? Or are you trying to simply first understand under what conditions you know, memory formation and learning is impaired. Yeah, so my focus is, is fully on trying to understand and really just develop the fundamental knowledge of, 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 of how the memory system works. Uh, it is my belief that one of the, the key reasons for, for us not being able to develop a new treatments at the moment is that we just don't uh, have the knowledge that we need to do so. So we need to develop more fundamental knowledge. And one of the main reasons why we don't have that knowledge is because uh, in the large majority of cases, we just can't, we can't look, si look inside the human brain. It's very difficult to measure neural activity inside the human brain uh, for obvious reasons. So the, I have developed uh, this new technique that we are using in my lab uh, that allows us to do this in a few uh, select cases, this technique of human single neuron recordings. Oh, wow. Okay. So what are you seeing in these recordings? 
human signal neural recordings means we are able to listen to the electrical activity of individual cells in the brain, which are called neurons. And so these neurons communicate with each other uh, by firing off little pulses, spikes. They, they talk to each other using this um, spike code. And the activity of, of individual neurons, you can really only uh, observe and measure when, if, if you have a sensor, an electrode very close to that neuron, and by very close, I mean about 100 micrometers. So, of course, that can only be done invasively, not, non, not non-invasive, because you would be way further away from the neurons. And that, of course, precludes using this technique in general in humans. But there are certain clinical conditions that require such electrode recordings uh, to be performed as part of the treatment. And we uh, uh, run research studies where we work with patients who are undergoing such treatments. And during those procedures, we can then listen to their uh, brain cells while they form memories, retrieve memories, talk about their memories. And this allows us very unique, precious, direct access to their brains uh, during which we can, we can then use that knowledge to, to, to inform ourselves how, how memory works. I mean, what's your model? Do you have to do this on rats first or can you do it in such a non-invasive way that you could do it with people? Yeah, so that's the uniqueness. So this this kind of work is usually done uh, in, in, in animal models, as, as you point out, the very large majority. But we are able to do this in people uh, invasively because these kind of recordings sometimes have to be performed to address uh, certain diseases. And in our case, that's uh, two cases. We work with patients who have intractable epilepsy, who are undergoing monitoring to figure out where their seizures are coming from for potential uh, surgical uh, treatment of their epilepsy. And the second group that we work with is patients who are being implanted with a deep brain stimulation device uh, because they have Parkinson's. And placing that device uh, requires very high accurate positioning of the electrode. And so during to do that, one also has to do uh, such recordings. So the, so the specialty of my lab and, uh, and of my work is that we are able to do this in humans. Okay. Um, so what have you observed so far? If someone's retrieving a memory versus forming a new one, what does that look like when you look at the neurons? Yes. So let me tell you a few surprising findings or discoveries that, that we have made. So the first finding that I would like to describe is we were recording from brain cells in a brain area called the hippocampus. So the hippocampus is a part of the brain that is extensively studied in, 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 in animals as well as in humans. And it is well known that it plays a very critical role in forming new memories, meaning if a hippocampus is uh, dysfunctional for some reason, we cannot form new memories at all. So uh, we recorded in the human hippocampus of uh, patients while we showed them uh, uh, pictures, photographs of things they had never seen before. And we also showed them videos of uh, little video clips that they had never seen before. And that allows us to, to investigate what happens uh, when I show you a photograph of a person you have never seen before. And then let's say 10 minutes later, I show you that same photograph again. And then of course it's familiar because you have uh, seen it before. So during this uh, recognition memory test, is that this is what this is called, we have discovered neurons in the hippocampus 
that react only the very first time you see something. So those neurons are novelty detectors or novelty neurons. And already the second time you see something, uh, those neurons uh, don't react anymore. And, and thus these neurons are, are, are a signature of a memory being formed. And indeed we think that these uh, novelty detection processes are critical because we find that if the if some uh, stimulus is not considered novel, no memory will be formed uh, for that stimulus. So that's one discovery that that we are that we have made and that we are working on these novelty cells. A second discovery that may be of interest for you to hear about is that of cognitive boundary detection. So uh, when we watch a video or when we uh, move through life, of course, our experience is continuous. It just moves on with time continuously. But our memory is not continuous. If you think about your memories, they actually appear in chunks, in episodes. And episodes begin and end at a certain period of time. And everything within that episode sort of appears as, as one entity. So a, a critical question is of what defines the beginning and the end of these episodes. And uh, this is what's called a cognitive boundary. And what we have found recently uh, in, in a recent study that we published is that there are cells in the hippocampus that react to when a new episode starts. And we call them cognitive boundary cells. And we found that these cells are what we think are responsible for segmenting memory. Uh, so to go from this continuous experience into a segmented episodes and they they initiate the storage of a, of a new file to say for a new episode what does the picture look like if you're looking at just one neuron versus a hundred versus a thousand versus ten thousand i don't know you know i know single neuron it's nice you get nice fidelity but then to have thousands of them must be very hard i don't know what the limit is currently but again what is the electrical or other signals look like when you go from one to multiple yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. So the, the, the way we view this is that there are different types of cells. So let's say you listen to uh, two cells simultaneously. One of them may be signaling cognitive boundaries and the other may be signaling novelty and, and so on. So there are, there are many different cell types that have different functions. So if we listen to 10 or 20 of them, uh, there may be three boundary cells and five novelty cells and then and, and so on and so on. And for many of these cells, we when we listen to them, we are not able to tell what their function is. It's just unknown, whereas for some others, uh, it is known. Uh, so the ultimate goal would be to decipher the function of all of these cells, of course, uh, together as a as a population. And just to to illustrate the, the challenge of doing this, um, the human brain, of course, consists of billions of neurons, and we are listening to single neurons. So uh, one a good way to conceptualize this is that these are the atoms of cognition. We are looking at individual atoms and trying to understand what they contribute to the cognition of, of a human being. And of course, that, that they will have play a very, very small role since there are so many. But those are the, the, the building blocks that, that we need to understand. Discover how your gut microbiome is impacting your cellular health, immune health, and how you're aging from the inside out with Viome's Health Intelligence Test. Collect your samples, send them to the Viome Lab, and within two to three weeks, your health scores and food and supplement recommendations will be available to you right in your Viome app.
Visit Viome.com and use code GENIUS to get an extra $20 off your health intelligence test. Again, when you look at the electric, electrical activity of a particular cell type, you're not just looking at one cell, you're looking at X number of them. So what have you found? How many are needed to be looked at in order to really push what's going on electrically, biochemically? You know, is it, does it tend to be like 10, 100? Uh, do you have any sense of that? No. So this is a, so, so using this technique, you can really, at a time, you observe sort of a handful of cells. But of course, the brain is highly redundant. So this is not to say if for some reason these 10 neurons that I'm presently observing are no longer active, that we no longer have memory. That's absolutely not the case. In fact, a really very critical open question is to answer exactly the question you asked, which is, to be specific, let's say I'm uh, meeting a new person now and I'm forming a memory of that person. How many brain cells are actually involved in forming that specific memory? That is a very critical question to which we really do not know the answer. But putatively and based on theoretical arguments, uh, the answer is presumably quite large, but we really act that, that we don't know. How much variation do you observe in the electrical patterns of, again, one cell type, one cell versus two, three, four, or five together? Do you, do you need to get to a certain minimum number in order to really characterize electrically what's going on with a given neuron type? Yes. So, so the more, if, if you see, let's say, 10 or 20 of those novelty cells simultaneously, um, then you have a much less variability in reading out that signal. That's very true. So the, the individual brain cells uh, activity is fairly um, variable. But if we see several of those brain cells at the same time, we can average the activity and, and, and it be much more reliable. Having said that, uh, what is really remarkable is that listening to a single cell tells us anything at all. It is, as you allude to, quite possible to imagine a situation where that would be much too noisy. One couldn't tell anything at all, but that's really not the case. What, what, depending on what brain cell we listen to, uh, just to give you an example, there's another type of cell which we call a category cell. So these, the response of these cells categorizes our stimulus. For example, uh, some, one cell would say you're presently looking at an animal or a tree or a car or, the, or a house they will categorize uh, stimuli at, at that kind of level. If you listen to one of those cells alone, uh, you're typically your probability of correctly saying whether somebody is looking at an animal or not is something between 70 to 80%. So, so it's actually quite a reliable uh, signal at the single neuron level, indicating that that's really the right level to, to understand uh, computation. But then to go from the 70 80% to 100%, uh, it's interesting to to look at how rapidly that curve grows, and it grows quite rapidly. So if you listen to 20 or 30 of these category cells, you, you can get to 100%. When you listen to individual cells, do you also listen you know, overall to the whole brain or to big swaths of the brain to compare the two? You know, Maybe now if you're looking at both ends of the spectrum, individual or small group versus whole, you might see patterns you might not have seen before. Absolutely. That is a very productive thing to do, to, to, to ask 
using more traditional measurements such as scalp EEG, where you put an electrode on the head and measure the, the, the total electric field that's generated by millions and millions of neurons, or the metabolic correlate of such using functional magnetic resonance imaging to, to, to then compare what things can we see at the single neuron level, uh, which things can we see sort of at the small population level, and which things can we see at this kind of mass level. Uh, that, that is a, a interesting uh, thing to do. And, and, and surprisingly, it turns out that, that many of these things um, at, at, at the mass level, you can't see them at all. And, and the reason for that is because there are different types of neurons and their activity often averages each other out. So there's novelty neurons, but there's also familiarity neurons. They do the opposite. So if we just average the activity of these two groups of neurons together, we would indeed uh, see nothing. But having said that, uh, we, we do have correlates of many of these memory processes that we can also see at, at the uh, more coarse, non-invasive level, of course. So ultimately, these recordings will also serve to, to better um, develop non-invasive um, imaging techniques. It would be very hard to test this, but when someone has these, um, these hookups into their neurons and they know they're being monitored, what if they act differently than when they know they're not being monitored? What if it recruits certain neurons and maybe some of the ones that you're observing because they know they're being observed? Like, you know, have you done an experiment where, let's say you tell the person, all right, we're going to observe you for five minutes and you do that. And then you say, all right, we're done observing you. And then you keep talking to the person, but you keep the recording on and seeing how things change. Would that give you any additional data? Yeah, some really some really cool experiments have actually been done this way. So, so I think you're maybe alluding to these. So the question is, if I'm actually um, showing on a screen the activity of one of those neurons to the patient being recorded from, I say, look here, this is the activity of your own uh, brain. This is uh, the activity of a particular cell in your brain that you can observe. And experiments have been done uh, by others, not by myself. Uh, where um, they ask the patient, try to see if you can uh, increase or decrease that activity uh, of that brain cell just by will, by fuck. And it turns out that's very often actually possible, meaning uh, they have willful control over, over activities uh, of, of their brain. So in that sense, they can observe um, themselves. And that, of course, is the basis for brain-machine interfaces. Where, where one can read out thoughts directly from neurons. Okay. Willie, what, what is gonna, the uh, future of this going to look like? What, uh, you know, what are some of your goals in terms of understanding over the next couple of years? Yeah, so as, as this field moves forward, um, it's, it's, it's interesting to consider that, that often real progress in understanding something comes from uh, developing new ways to measure something. And I think we definitely have this in terms of uh, single neuron recordings. Uh, so the way I see, uh, the way I, I personally will uh, develop my work in the future is to, to um, develop new computational tools to understand uh, what groups of neurons do together. So it's, it's interesting to see that, that the capability of acquiring data in general, in neuroscience, has developed much faster than our ability to to really conceptually make sense um, of that data. 
So there's a lot of really exciting new developments of new computational techniques to really understand population activity to develop, in our case, geometric interpretations of the patterns of neural activity. So that, that's this, 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 the field of neuroscience and AI here is, 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 is converging in many ways to, to use similar tools to understand the brain as well as to understand uh, artificial uh, uh, networks. Okay. Yeah, one of the last questions. So if a, a lay person looks at the data, I'm sure they'll, they'll be like, uh, I don't know. What, I don't I have no clue what this is. But you're looking at it with your eyes. What do you see? What interesting patterns or phenomena do you see that you didn't see before you started observing? Yeah, there are, there are certainly a number of really interesting phenomena that, that anybody can appreciate. So one of those is, is the ones I've already briefly alluded to is the cognitive boundaries. We can all appreciate how significant these uh, boundaries are in our memories. So, for example, if you, if you uh, work in your office one day and you go about your, your, your business and you receive a phone call and you're being told something that's completely uh, unexpected, it completely came out of the wild, it's, it's apparent that that clearly creates a, a different uh, memory, a different episode. So, and then that episode will, will be a strong memory, will be remembered forever, as opposed to when, as we have, of course, all done now, if, if you're sitting at home for several months with sort of nothing different happening, then we sort of really don't actually remember that. It sort of all flows into each other. So it indicates that one way to, to strengthen memories is, is to create more of these uh, cognitive uh, boundaries. And another critical insight that one can take away from this is, is the importance of novelty. So a key driver of, of, of forming new memories is if something is novel. And uh, uh, similar here, this, this also, we can all allude to this now that when we didn't have novelty sitting at home for months, very few memories were in fact created. When you look at the actual electrical data, do you see certain cyclic, you know, like cycling patterns or do you see certain um, literally features of the data when you look at it that that bring to mind certain ideas or questions yeah absolutely so um you're 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 talking about cyclic activity so one of the really prominent things that uh, one observes when looking at this data is that neural activity is oscillatory it sort of comes and goes in waves and one of the main oscillations that modulates brain activity this way is called the theta oscillation uh, which oscillates at approximately five hertz, and and it's interesting to observe that that uh, with, with this rhythm, our memory processes oscillate, and that that brain rhythm is uh, often actually uh, deficient when when in memory disorders. So one of the key ideas that are being pursued in the field is as a way to treat memory disorders is to reestablish this rhythm. Uh, using deep brain stimulation. And that's indeed a very promising avenue for future investigation. Well, Yuli, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Yes, they can uh, please uh, go uh, to my website, which is rutishauserlab.org. We have offered, uh, there are links there to all our uh, publications and in particular, uh, our most recent paper on the cognitive boundaries, for example, uh, would be a good starting point to engage with this work.
Okay, and last thing, uh, can you spell Rutus Hauser for listeners? Absolutely. So Rutus Hauser is R-U-T-I-S-H-A-U-S-E-R. So it's rutushauserlab.org. Very good. Well, Yuli, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was great. Thanks for having me. Don't forget, before you go, use code GENIUS at Viome.com for an additional $20 off your health intelligence test and get started on your health journey with the right foods, supplements, and probiotics and prebiotics for your unique biology. Get a deeper look within with Viome's health intelligence test. Viome, you decoded. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.